When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Your host, Ruben Neunheis. Today, I will be speaking with Sam Otancic about his book, The Labor of Enjoyment, Towards a Critique of Libidinal Economy. Samo is a professor in Hamburg at the University of Fine Arts. Samo, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, great pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, to jump right in, the first question we like to ask is, can you just briefly introduce yourself and talk a bit about your academic interests? Yes. Uh, so basically, I'm a philosopher um, interested in or working in the field of uh, continental philosophy, political theory or pre- political philosophy, history of structuralism, history and theory of psychoanalysis and of linguistic ideas. So basically, yeah, it's this kind of intersection of uh, political philosophy um, psychoanalysis, uh, uh, and yeah, main, mainly yeah, also kind of epistemology or critical epistemology. So this would be the fields in which uh, I would kind of uh, uh, locate myself. I studied philosophy in Ljubljana, uh, so uh, at the University of Ljubljana, and was um, very early uh, drawn to the. Um, you know, what is uh, globally known as the Ljubljana School of uh, Theoretical Psychoanalysis. Um, that was definitely, yeah, the most, um, the most engaging uh, philosophical perspective that, um, that I encountered during my studies and also uh, most strongly located in the present uh, in the present moment i mean the philosophy department there kind of offered you know a wide range of uh, uh, of uh, uh, philosophy schools uh, so it's it wasn't very monolithic unlike so many philosophy departments uh, uh, elsewhere which are i, I mean sadly still predominated, um, um, I mean, still dominated by, by an analytic philosophy, um, which, I mean, is an interesting, uh, has its own interesting moments, but uh, if a department is monolithic, it's never, it, I, I think that's never a good sign. So we had a lot of analytic philosophy, but also a lot of phenomenology, Heideggerian philosophy, uh, various aspects of contemporary continental uh, theory um, and yeah that's that very strongly you know marked uh, 
my own anchoring in uh, the philosophical field. And um, this uh, Lacanian theory, I guess, uh, reflects this multiplicity also of uh, um, uh, and also inner conflictuality and incoherence of, uh, of the philosophical field. So um, in this respect, you know, it was, uh, it was kind of uh, speaking to me. Um, you know, as a as a sort of a philosophical choice, which is which is also never definite. You know, it's always uh, uh, it's always uh, being adjusted and uh, uh, hopefully improved. Hmm. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll hear some more about the Lacanian theory later on in the show. Um, so this book is it's a follow up to your previous one, the Capitalist Unconscious. Can you talk a bit about what made you want to write this book and how and where does it pick up from your previous book? Um, well, I mean, actually, yeah, it's, uh, well, the previous book was, uh, was really, um, for me personally, a sort of, uh, uh, a sort of bureaucratic, uh, bureaucratic task to, to really figure out for myself, uh, uh in the first place, uh, what's, behind Lacan's engagement with, uh, with Marx, which for the most part of his teaching is very sporadic and not, not really going in-depth, uh, um, just dropping references or uh, evoking some sort of fundamental uh, contributions and problems addressed by Marx's critique of political economy. But then, uh, of course, there is this moment post-68 where Lacan does have a, a more intensified engagement with Marx, uh, uh, with Marx's theory of value and with Marx's uh, uh, notion of the proletariat uh, that he links with uh, the problematic of enjoyment in, in psychoanalysis and with the, um, yeah, the psychoanalytic theory of the subject. So um, although one could say that, well, very easily and... Uh, uh, I think one is justified to say so, that, that Lacan <laughs> here, uh, you know, uh, appears very opportunistic, you know, seizing the moment of, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, intensification of uh, uh, um, Marx, well, a certain, certain Marxist, uh, 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 certain aspect of Marxist thought in the student, uh, students' movement and or the Alliance of the Worker and Students' Movement uh, in the 68 and post-68 uh, uh, period, um, I would say that behind this opportunism and behind also the fact that uh, as a private person, he was actually a moderate conservative, uh, a de Gaullian, uh, and so on and so forth, there is some sort of surplus that is, uh, that is produced and that is, of course, associated with the label Lacan uh, or with the proper name Lacan, but goes beyond, you know, these personal political choices. And uh, precisely this this moment of Lacan jumping over his own shadow through a theoretical uh, through a theoretical engagement with uh, uh, with Marx uh, interested me. And um, so, yeah, while the, the capitalist unconscious was a sort of attempt to systematize for myself and, you know, also for, for everyone else who might be interested in, this, um, in these issues, 
um, in the various layers and aspects of Lacan's engagement with Marx's critique of political economy. Uh, the second, I mean, this, this follow-up book, The Labor of Enjoyment, then kind of uh, perhaps tried to uh, fill some, fill in some gaps or, you know, um, return to certain aspects that were indicated in the capitalist unconscious, but really kind of uh, more, more parked in the footnotes or were... <clears throat> uh, more or less indicated. And one, one such aspect is precisely the problematic of labor uh, in the analytic process and, uh, well, in psychoanalytic theory on a more general level. Uh, um, that's why, um, yeah, this, this entire link between uh, uh, psychic work or what Freud calls uh, psychic work um, and the uh, production of enjoyment uh, that, of course, is addressed also in the first book, but it's kind of uh, yeah, um, shifting the focus more uh, in the psychoanalytic field and doesn't really engage with uh, this specific, uh, specific aspect of uh, Lacan's own in, you know, interest in Marx, whatever that may be. Mm, yeah. Your introduction chapter's title gives us a clue about what you might come to argue in this book. The clinical is political. Yeah. Can you unpack what you mean by this and why it's so crucial for your overall argument? Well, I mean, uh, I think this, uh, um, this phrasing, the clinical is political, is something that we can uh, very much detect in Freud already. I mean, today it's... Uh, Today, this is this is no big news, uh, you know. That um, um, as soon as we start thinking about uh, uh, um, psychic suffering, you know, in quotation marks, uh, we uh, are pretty much dealing with, uh, um, or we pretty much encounter very quickly a social or socio-economic uh, uh, etiology, or causes. Um, but uh, Freud stands at the root of this. Um, I mean, his, uh, um, well, very, from very early on, I mean, the, the Oedipal drama, even though if we, if we criticize, uh, criticize it and justify, I mean, legitimately so, um, is not some sort of, you know, um, Private, uh, private conflict, uh, um, you know, that is detached from the broader social framework, um, but is precisely the crisis uh, of uh, um, of the bourgeois uh, of the bourgeois family. Um, then, um, I mean, Freud is really, you know, encountering an entire culture, uh, an entire entire. Crisis-driven culture uh, on, on on the couch. I mean, later, very uh, very known his uh, engagement with the uh, uh, war uh, war neurotics or so-called war neurosis, uh, what we would you know today call uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or uh, you know like uh, um, yeah uh, uh, war burnout traumas and so on and so forth. Um, uh, and that's really in the immediate aftermath of uh, the First World War that this becomes uh, really 
uh, viral. Uh, you know this this new type of uh, of traumatized subjectivity that uh, uh, directly results as a surplus product from this new type of global uh, warfare and. Uh, uh, new military technologies and uh, and so on and so forth, and he evokes this in beyond the pleasure principle. I mean, this is the this is the entry line. Uh, we see the clinical is political meaning here precisely that uh, uh, um, phenomena that uh, psychoanalysis encounters in uh, the clinical experience, the damaged subjectivity, you know that that. Uh, uh, seeks analytic help is precisely uh, a, uh, a surplus product of the social socially prevalent uh, mode of production and of uh, yeah the capitalist uh, aggressive organization or, uh, and exploitation of life so again this is this is this may today be, be a commonplace but uh, um, when freud formulated these uh, uh, um, these uh, <clears throat> clinically grounded theses or insights, uh, you know, they pretty much opened up a, uh, the horizon, an unprecedented horizon in uh, also political philosophy or for political philosophy because they implied an entirely uh, different uh, uh, theory of the subject uh, or theory of political subjectivity, which has to be, you know, like... Uh, sought in in clinics in this in this case yeah well to set the stage a bit can you tell us a little bit about the term libidinal economy um where does this term originate how does it relate in contrast to political economy well i mean um of course um people listening to this podcast will will uh will i guess guess that uh um, or will probably know the term libidinal econ- economy from uh, uh, Jean-François Lyotard, um, who published a book with this title in 1974. But um, Freud himself actually, um, you know, uh, uses the term uh, libido economy, um, uh, libido economy, or libidinal economy. I mean, that's uh, uh, that's a term that doesn't really often appear in his work but he uh, but it does appear and uh, um, the economic vocabulary uh, is present in Freud's work since the interpretation of dreams you know since his first major work uh, in or first major systematic work uh, uh, in psychoanalysis where he really uh, you know uh, spells out the um, specificities of the analytic method on the example of dreams, one of the major uh, uh, unconscious formations uh, where he analyzes the satisfaction of uh, repressed unconscious uh, desire. And he analyzes this really in economic terms, in terms of production of pleasure, uh, out of, uh, I mean, in the course of uh, uh, dream processes, um, and uh, he speaks of uh, uh, dream work. Um, later books speak about, I mean, uh, extend this point to uh, 
joke work uh, uh, or work taking place in jokes uh, and in humor. Um, then he speaks about the work of mourning, uh, the analytic work, which is somewhat different than, than you know, these uh, uh, various forms of unconscious work. But uh, he basically, he bla- he basically um, defines in, in these uh, um, yeah, uh, theoretical and clinical engagements pleasure as the surplus product of all mental activities. He, he says it, he puts it very explicitly at a certain point that all mental activities strive towards uh, 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 a gain, uh, an increase in pleasure uh, or in, you know, generating pleasure. Um, so here, here we have one aspect of this, uh, uh, yeah, libidinal economy. Uh, and the other one is, and it's also uh, pinpointed by Freud himself uh, in, uh, in a term that he coins he speaks also of trip uh, economy, so drive economy. And here, another very, very successful encounter with Marx's critique of political economy takes place because he, I mean, Marx actually, um, and some would say this is, this is some of his uh, more speculative, maybe perhaps, you know, Hegelian moments, so not to be taken... Uh, too seriously to be taken more like uh, like a sort of uh, uh, yeah metaphor or you know literary surplus uh, of otherwise very scientific very systematic very uh, uh, down to earth marks but I think it's an essential feature when he declares capital to be drive a, a drive you know a a, a force. Uh, um, which uh, uh, pursues one single interest, and that's continuous increase uh, uh, in value or production of surplus value. Uh, and uh, it, it, again, this is this is something that is <laughs> that is a commonplace uh, uh, when when we talk about Marx. But uh, still, I find it even today very fascinating. You know that uh, that there is this. Uh, um, very far-reaching encounter also on the level of terminology and on the way Marx and Freud understand the drive. They both understand it as this constant push towards, uh, towards a continuous, perpetual uh, satisfaction which ultimately turns fatal, lethal, deadly uh, uh, for, um, you know, uh, particular uh, p- particular subjects, but also for the entire social framework. So in the end, uh, yeah, uh, uh, very rigorous pursuit of this continuous demand for satisfaction uh, ultimately implies, if we are a, a little bit sinister, death or destruction. So. Uh, um, yeah, this is where we are today. This is where we are. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, in your book, you look at three main paradigms of thought when it comes to libidinal politics. That of Aristotle with his politics of happiness, that of Adam Smith with his politics of narcissism, and that of Freud with what you call his politics of working through. 
I want to start by maybe looking at these first two thinkers. At one point, you say that Aristotle and Adam Smith start with a wager that there is a measure of pleasure. What is meant by measure of pleasure? And more broadly, what are Aristotle's and Adam Smith's general arguments in terms of libidinal politics? Oof, uh, I mean, <laughs> that uh, uh, would, would demand an entire talk, I guess, to, uh, to unpack this properly. But, uh, you know, to keep it, uh, to keep it short, to keep it short, uh, um, of course, one could also add different, uh, I mean, other names to this. But uh, the, the, main, the main break between Aristotle and Adam Smith on the one hand and Freud on the other is precisely that they still... Uh, they still think that pleasure is inherently social and only social, not, for instance, antisocial or, you know, like, uh, as I said, in relation to the drive uh, in Marx and Freud, uh, something that, that from within, from within the social order dismantles this very order in order to extract some sort of pleasurable surplus uh, from it. And, uh, you know, um, Lacan's main thesis is that surplus value is systemic enjoyment, enjoyment of the capitalist system taken as a whole. Um, um, it has a homological status to ple pleasure or lust, you know, or what has been translated into English as enjoyment in, uh, in Freud. Um, but, yeah, um, to get back to Aristotle and Adam Smith, uh, they... <clears throat> have this, uh, this um, yeah, sort of superficial shared assumption that um, uh, all human activities are somehow directed towards the pursuit of pleasure, which is synonymous to happiness, and avoidance of pain, which is synonymous to unhappiness. I mean, ben, ben, Jeremy Bentham formulated it, it in this manner, but we can already see this uh, idea of uh, the ethics uh, of pleasure, you know, which uh, strive towards a certain inherent equilibrium and, uh, uh, yeah, the state of happiness uh, in Aristotle. But unlike, <clears throat> unlike Adam Smith, who lives already in uh, what we could perhaps call the universe, uh, the, the universe of quantification, um, Aristotle simply assumes that there is some sort of right measure or an inherent balance uh, of pleasure. <clears throat> so avoidance of uh, um, imminent, uh, imminent excesses to the field of pleasure. Um, and um, um, the difference in this well, idea that uh, uh, pleasure has an inherent balance, equilibrium, that it's, uh, 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 that, that, yeah, it's, uh, it's susceptible for, uh, for, you know, uh, uh, sociality also, or uh, uh, is, uh, sustaining social bonds. Uh, the difference here is... <clears throat> Like I said, that for uh, for Aristotle, this uh, measure is not uh, is is not something that that could be uh, quantified, so really measured in the modern sense of of term. 
of scientific or epistemic measurement, but uh, is a sort of a uh, moral maxim or, you know, um, um, yeah, it's, it's a question of ethics. It's not a question of economics uh, mod in the modern sense of the term as a science of value. Uh, um, but, uh, yeah, the, uh, the Smithian assumption uh, is that um, human, uh, human beings or human subjects uh, are, on the one hand, con uh, sort of, uh, yeah, always pursuing their private interests, uh, or, or in other words, that they are... Uh, uh, essentially uh, egoistic. That's why, you know, the, the paradigm of uh, narcissism, uh, which is perhaps a little bit out of place here, but uh, um, the, point, the point was precisely to uh, place the accent to this self-referentiality uh, uh, of, uh, uh, of pleasure on the one hand and of personality uh, uh, on the other. Um, so his thesis is everyone is pursuing their, their own private interest, but out of these, this multiplicity of uh, um, private egoism, somehow miraculously we observe emerging uh, coherent and well-regulated social order, so a sort of harmony of higher, uh, of higher order. Uh, and he uses different names, as we know, uh, for this higher order, um, the invisible hand of the market, market providence, uh, uh, um, uh, sympathy of affects, um, you know. So he assumes that somehow we can get synchronized as social beings uh, um, on the level uh, on the level of um, yeah, a rigorous pursuit of our private interests and not nothing but private interests. So we have here a paradoxical situation where a sociality, a good social order, which um, um, enforces happiness, is uh, uh, assumed under the condition that uh, everyone can simply, uh, you know, fully actualize their uh, uh, their. Um, egotistic tendencies, mm. and of course, I mean this is uh, yeah, this is uh, <laughs> uh, anything but the case. Yeah, right. Well, and it, to get to the third figure, so Freud, I mean, he took a pretty radical change from Aristotle and Smith, um, and I think in the book he used the phrase "unmeasure of pleasure." Um, so. I guess maybe can you talk a bit about what you find most important with Freud that contrasts with these figures? Well, I mean, it's precisely this this idea of unple uh, of un well unmeasure, uh, which means not only that uh, that enjoyment uh, that enjoyment uh, <clears throat> is essentially non quantifiable, but we can also say that this. This feature of enjoyment that it constantly uh, escapes uh, quantification also drives uh, uh, 
quantification processes of quantification and translation of uh, of of enjoyment into into value um, into surplus value uh, that's that's one thing but the other the other one which is much more important uh, um, and which again you know is meanwhile uh, a commonplace to 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 mention or to recall when we, we talk about uh, uh, Freud is that his theory of pleasure is grounded on the assumption that there is no uh, there is no strict divide uh, or dichotomy between pleasure and unpleasure and that's uh, um, I often repeat this, so, uh, but but it's really coded already in in the very word uh, that he uses, lust. Uh, so it's not vergnügen. Vergnügen would be pleasure, uh, whereas lust is uh, much more closer to um, all the problems that come with uh, that that are coded also in the English word lust. So there's something involuntary, something that. Uh, that uh, overwhelms uh, me as a you know a psychosomatic uh, existence uh, that is a feature of my body which or or of uh, the psychosomatic nexus but uh, uh, at the same time comes as a sort of uh, mm, yeah <clears throat> uh, feeling or a state of affection which uh, basically divides, alienates me and uh, um, has a very unsharp border between where it's pleasurable in the everyday sense of the term and where it's unpleasurable. Again, in the every, everyday sense of the, of the term. And that's, uh, that's basically what Lacan then uh, also addresses with his term jouissance uh, that he proposes as a translation for lust. So today we have this... Uh, uh, you know, termo- terminological chaos, uh, where where we basically have to operate with three terms for the same issue: pleasure, enjoyment, and jouissance. If we now uh, remain restricted uh, to uh, to the English uh, to the English language, which has also adopted uh, uh, just the French uh, the French term uh, for this uh, uh, Lacanian. Uh, reframing of the freudian of the freudian points but what they all i mean in all of them basically uh one and the same issue is at stake that's uh loosed or whatever we want to translate it with these three terms uh pleasure jouissance uh, enjoyment uh is an unbalance a disequilibrium uh, inherently, the field of enjoyment is in perpetual disequilibrium. It has a, problem, a problematic surplus that, in capitalism, uh, very successfully gets translated into the idea of uh, a, an object whose uh, the, the defining feature of which is precisely growth or increase, quantitative increase. Um, so yeah, in, again, in this respect, we have uh, uh, we can observe, you know, where quantification and failure of quantification or failure of measurement and measurement uh, uh, play into each other and kind of you know form this uh, virtually endless, uh, 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 virtually endless dynamics. Yeah, and that's probably where the drive really fits in. I mean. 
the, the pleasure for the sake of pleasure and the you talk about two types of self-preservation the self-preservation of the organism and self-preservation of the drive yeah yeah, yeah exactly and uh, the drive self-preservation uh, consists in uh, you know the indistinction the impossibility to to keep satisfaction and dissatisfaction apart that's why Freud also spoke about fixation as uh, as a feature of the drive that the drive basically found its object you know and cannot get enough of it uh, and this is where we also get uh, uh, this is where we also get this uh, drive like dimension of social economy uh, uh, that's that's precisely how uh, how marx speaks about uh, uh, the drive of self-valorization, or you know, capital, basically, um, uh, it's uh, it's a continuous uh, continuous demand for surplus value, which is never enough surplus. It's never it's it's never definite. It always has it always uh, has to go for more, um, and this more, this encore. Uh, as, as Lacan would put it, uh, is the object uh, of uh, uh, capital as drive, and also the Freudian drive, you know, uh, this uh, pleasure beyond pleasure. Right. Well, that segues nicely into my next question, um, which is, well, one of the things that's very apparent in this book is the close parallels you demonstrate between Freud and Marx. I think this is um, especially seen the concept of alienation. And in fact, at one point in the book, you make what I thought was a striking observation. You say that Hegel was the first one to identify speech and labor as two processes that demonstrate the constitutive character of alienation. And further argue that Freud and Marx's collective works could be interpreted as two footnotes, just expounding on that insight. Could you unpack a tiny bit how Freud and Marx contributed to theorizing alienation? And like, what is it about speech and labor that are so special? Well, you know, I mean, for Hegel's, uh, uh, well, actually, Hegel, Hegel puts three uh, activities uh, uh, in, in Phenomenology of Spirit uh, as uh, um, what he calls uh, 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 externalization. You know, and um, it's again, uh, uh, um, you know, so many things get lost in translation because uh, uh, um, we often speak of alienation when we talk about Hegel, uh, but uh, he uses various terms for, for you know, um, one and the same problematic. And uh, fundamentally, alienation for him is... Uh, um, externalization for Oisserung, you know, something inner becoming outer, standing opposite to, to me as, a, uh, uh, as an acting subject. Uh, but for, of course, for Freud, the situation, I mean, for Freud, for Hegel, the situation gets a little bit more complicated because the very difference between inner and outer gets established in this activity. So the activity of speech establishes uh, establishes 
the inner world that is supposed to get expressed in the activity of speech uh, or express something outer in the activity uh, of speech, some sort of reality or whatever, or inner needs. I mean, we could speculate on this. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't really uh, <laughs> seem necessary. Uh, but, but in any case, as I speak, I basically establish the inside that is supposed to be expressed and the outside, which is the expression, you know, my speech as it is formulated. Uh, it's constantly, you know, going out into the world in terms of communication, writing, uh, recording, whatever. Um, uh, and then, yeah, the second activity is, of course, the activity of, of, of labor, which also in, engages... Uh, engages an entire body and, uh, well, the body-mind nexus uh, in order to produce an, extern an externality, an external object, which, again, kind of reflects the inner world of my needs, which motivated me to, to produce this object, a commodity or whatever, you know. Uh, um, and... Um, well, at the same time reflects the system of value in which this object, if it is a commodity, you know, is, uh, is embedded. Um, and, well, the third activity that Freud, uh, uh, Freud, sorry, uh, Hegel um, uh, mentions is uh, movement, uh, movement, uh, movement of the body in the world, you know, walking, for instance, uh, uh, I mean, he 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 speaks about um, the working hand, the speaking mouth, and then he just adds a note, and we have to add the feet. So the feet as the organ with which we touch the ground and also establish a certain mode of difference. Um, so, so basically, uh, in all these three cases, but of course, I mean, he's uh, more focusing on uh, speech and, uh, uh, and work because these are uh, social, uh, um, social activities. Um, we could also, of course, argue for, for, for you know, walking as a, as a social political activity. I mean, let's think of peripatetic philosophy and so on and so forth. But uh, um, what's important is that, yeah, he's here addressing the emergence of difference. Above all, the emergence of difference uh, uh, between uh, inside and outside. But we could also, you know, like uh, add... I mean, think about other other types of differences like economic value or linguistic value, difference between signifiers, difference between values, and so on and so forth. So in this respect, you know, uh, he provides this kind of minimal framing uh, for understanding language and labor or linguistic processes and uh, economic processes as uh, or economic processes, uh, more fundamentally, uh, uh, every form of work uh, as, uh, uh, as a process of externalization. And uh, 
On the next level, of course, we, we then get also this drama of alienation that we usually uh, associate with this term and that Marx and Freud uh, very thoroughly uh, um, uh, theorize and you know, also address in their uh, uh, critical and cl clinical uh, practices. Um, and uh, uh, that would be then <clears throat> in German, entfremdung. You know, that something becomes foreign or is, you know, uh, detached from me. I'm deprived of it. Uh, and this is where the dimension of exploitation also, uh, also comes, uh, comes in. Uh, that's why I'm also, uh, I'm also insisting uh, um, repeatedly that the problem is not so much alienation as such, but... Uh, that we live in a system which is very strongly grounded, which is really <laughs> developing uh, uh, continuous strategies to exploit alienation. Uh, and of course, I mean, these two aspects of alienation are intertwined. One, one cannot say, I, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to say there is good alienation, there is bad alienation. I would rather say there is a certain dimension of alienation that is constitutive for, for the human subject, but it, it, it doesn't necessarily uh, imply that uh, exploitation is the only way that we can, we, we can deal with, uh, with alienation or alternatively postulate some sort of uh, ideal non-alienated condition in which we are what we are, you know, having authentic human relations, or what, or we we reach an authentic level of subjectivity or of the self, and so on and so forth. I mean, from the history, we know that the attempts which have postulated such non-alienated conditions were the most oppressive and the most alienating. You know, like you know, like like for instance, economic liberalism and neoliberalism. On the one hand, uh, which really see in this good social egoist uh, uh, a sort of non-alienated uh, 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 figure of subjectivity. Um, or, you know, Stalinism, uh, which kind of wanted to really, you know, prohibit all, uh, all forms of alienation, not just, you know, this capitalist type of... Uh, uh, alienation uh, through commodification and so on and so forth. Um, but maybe as a, as a final remark, of course, in, in Freud, these terms do not appear, externalization or veräußerung or uh, um, um, alienation in the, you know, this sense of expropriation. Um, uh, and in Marx, they also appear only in the, uh, in the early... Uh, uh, in the early uh, work, like in, in the Parisian manuscripts, which are the most uh, famous uh, Marx, Marxian engagement with the problematic of alienation. But one can see it in Capital, you know, that alienation somehow is also a feature that he observes in Capital itself, you know, as an, as an abstract, but at the same time also very material uh, process of uh, um, yeah externalization of value in terms of commodity and then retranslation or 
uh, I mean, he addresses it in, with, with the idea of metamorphosis, you know, of, of, of value into different, into different uh, expressions, some, some more material uh, than others. Yeah. But again, I mean, this is like a huge issue. It's again, yeah, <laughs> would say we could talk about it for, for ages. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, just still on the theme of the overlap between Freud and Marx, uh, I guess one other thing I wanted to ask about is the two similar economy equations that they have. So, I mean, Marx is famous, famous for um, MCM prime and Freud yeah. with PLP prime. Uh, could you well, talk about you that know, a little? You don't find this PLP prime in... <laughs> oh, it's, it's in, not in Freud. In Freud, it's basically, it's basically what I'm uh, suggesting. Uh, uh, again, uh, starting from Lacan's uh, idea that there is a homology between surplus value and what he gets to call surplus enjoyment... Uh, and with this term, he's translating uh, a technical term by Freud, which is Lustgewinn. And Lustgewinn is basically, if we literally uh, uh, translate it, uh, pleasure gain or pleasure profit. Uh, uh, so pleasure as a surplus, which is produced ongoing, in an ongoing uh, manner, uh, uh, through the workings of mental apparatus and the uh, uh, yeah problematic uh, uh, connection between the uh, psychic and the corporeal um, uh, that's that's his way of fra- uh, framing it but uh, uh, yeah that's uh, um, that's the idea behind behind this uh, uh, pleasure uh, work surplus pleasure or increase in uh, in pleasure yeah right well you have a lot to say about capitalism from a psychoanalytic perspective uh, you already touched on capitalism being a system built on exploitation of alienation um could you maybe this kind of connects probably to marx's engagement with uh, the drive, but can you make the connection for cap- how capitalism makes an imperative for subjects to produce pleasure for the sake of pleasure? Um, well, I mean, uh, again, this is uh, this is where this idea of surplus as a, um, as an on the one hand economic imperative as something that our uh, activities, social and private, uh, uh, have to continuously produce. uh, um, And um, so on the one hand, this this, this idea of economic surplus and uh, then, you know, the idea of continuous pursuit of uh, of pleasure um, um, kind of fall into into each other and uh, start to become... Uh, perhaps even difficult to uh, to distinguish, but I think this is uh, this is also part of Lacan's uh, points um, that this was not always the case. You know that this uh, uh, um, this uh, pursuit of surplus um, and the 
corresponding continuum between satisfaction and dissatisfaction uh, is something that is uh, um, specific for modernity and is also being, you know, progressively, <clears throat> progressively implemented uh, uh, in, into into society. Um, now, of course, I mean one one framework where we could uh, where we could detect this is, uh, uh, and it's a very narrow segment of uh, of capitalist organization of uh, uh, of the social uh, is consumerism. You know, I mean this this is where we um, we can also then perhaps get another reference in uh, on the boat uh, Herbert Marcuse, who was really the the uh, theoretician of uh, of con consumer society mm, in his uh, yeah one dimensional man for instance or uh, uh, yeah his his work on uh, um, eros and civilization uh, but even more so in the one dimensional uh, uh, man uh, but uh, I think Lacan is also you know going beyond this um, beyond this narrow framework of uh, consumer society because surplus enjoyment if we or if we understand uh, uh, marx's economic category uh, or the way marx thinks uh, uh, the economic category of surplus value in this in you know like kind of uh, 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 holistic view where it is structurally located what is what is its function and so on and so forth then we can we can say that yeah we are living in uh, uh, in a social system uh, that behaves like a sort of enjoyment machine, but an enjoyment machine which uh, um, not only you know uh, is to be approached through the lenses of consumerism, but also through the lenses of uh, mm, dismantling of uh, of well social bonds of you know uh, uh, um, yeah individual lives of uh, environmental uh, uh, systems uh, and so on and so forth so really with the sole aim of extracting value liberating in quotation marks value from all uh, existing uh, uh, mm, Connectivities that that are out there in the world. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, this uh, this would be then, uh, um, yeah, um, this would be then also perhaps you know the anti-social aspect, radically anti-social aspect of uh, the surplus in this uh, libidinal and and economic uh, economic framework. Yeah, and, and this is why. Yeah, perhaps just to, just to add, um, I mean, Lacan speaks of homology, you know, which means that he is uh, uh, claiming that the same logics uh, structures the field of individual personal enjoyments, you know, conditionally speaking, and uh, uh, the, mm, the economic extractivism. Or you know this continuous pursuit of uh, of surplus value. Um, this doesn't mean that you know 
social, we, we start seeing the social order as one mega individu individuum uh, or, you know, like uh, that we are engaging in some sort of psychologization of uh, the, the capitalist system as a whole, but uh, rather to, you know, determine determine a logics. And the logics here, you know, is uh, uh, predominantly concerned with the way um, this problematic surplus functions on different uh, uh, levels of, of reality, psychological, social, environmental, uh, also epistemic, also when it comes to producing knowledge, uh, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think you, you sum it up nicely when you say that capitalism is a culture of death drive par excellence. Yeah, yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. That, that this link between capital uh, capitalism and uh, and the death drive. I mean, it's, you you'll find it. Yeah, in different uh, uh, Lacanian uh, uh, Lacanian contexts. Um, I'm particularly interested in you know this 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 aspect of the death drive where we take death seriously you know not kind of you know uh, making the point uh, that uh, um, for instance Deleuze also also made uh, uh, which is an interesting point but and and Zizek picks it up uh, and again it's an interesting point but I think it's kind of uh, it's kind of uh, then excluding this dimension of aggressiveness, violence, uh, and uh, really drive for destruction that Freud uh, determines on the level of the drive and gives it this kind of separate name, death drive. Um, but uh, yeah, Deleuze and others' point is uh, that uh, the drive is this kind of excess of life over itself. I mean, uh, to sum up very... Uh, very uh, superficially, and you know, also uh, uh, there there are many precisions to be made. But the idea behind these, let's say, optimistic readings of uh, the death drive in quotation marks, <laughs> optimistic, uh, uh, is precisely that uh, that yeah, it's not about uh, some sort of suicidal drive to auto destruction. And I agree with this. Uh, but uh, sort of, you know, uh, uh, a vital excess uh, and therefore a sort of uh, uh, also uh, mode of negativity. Mm, but again, I mean, I, I, I like to uh, uh, return to this uh, uh, part of the uh, Freudian concept of the death drive where death really, I mean, he really means death. It really means, you know, that uh, uh, um, uh, that uh, rigorous pursuit of the drive's demand uh, um, implies death for 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 the subject or for society. Uh, if if we want to, you know, extend the point to. Uh, what Marx intuits uh, about uh, capital—that it's ultimately, that it's ultimately a force which uh, hijacks society and uh, uh, pushes it uh, uh, increasingly into collapse. Hmm. 
Yeah. Well, my next few questions are about psychoanalysis aims and uh, the type of labor. For Lacan, psychoanalysis aims for elevating the subject from impotence to impossibility. And you argue that political organizations should do the same. Can you talk about what these positions are? What's the position of impotence, the position of impossibility? Um, well, I mean, you know, this, uh, this um, distinction between impotence and, uh, and impossibility is something that Lacan makes uh, uh, himself in, uh, in his seminar on four discourses. Uh, uh, and uh, I guess the, the point, or, you know, to kind of exemplify it, uh, uh, I would say the position of impotence is... Uh, uh, mm, if we if if we turn to Marx, is uh, a situation in which the proletarian finds itself or find themselves uh, in when they are embedded in the uh, process of valorization, uh, when basically their lives are are being. Uh, quantified and translated into a a commodified mode of existence, which is labor power, uh, and are, you know, embedded in this uh, uh, ongoing process of producing surplus value, uh, which is the sole task uh, uh, of labor in capitalist universe, and also the sole uh, mm, perspective from which... uh, uh, the value of a life is uh, uh, is being determined and uh, uh, and measured. Um, um, the yeah, the level of impotence would be here. You know, a, a weak position uh, in which the subject finds uh, finds itself also a state of disorganization. Uh, mm, and uh, uh, yeah, without without being being uh, able to uh, resist this systemic systemic demand and work through the contradictions that uh, come with with this socioeconomic uh, socioeconomic framework. Like I think I think this is this is the point that that Lacan addresses with uh, importancy. Uh, uh, disorganization and dismantling of uh, the bonds of solidarity, for instance. Uh, uh, um, uh, the position of impossibility would be would be the, the contrary uh, the contrary to this. You know, it it would. I mean, it may suggest you know, oh, being in an impossible position me means being uh, in a position where I am not able to act. Uh, against the source of my, or the cause of my misery and uh, uh, um, the, the, the force of, uh, of exp- the forces of exploitation. But uh, for, uh, for Lacan, uh, when he uses, you know, uh, impossibility, he always, uh, he always marks, uh, um, yeah, an, uh, an antagonistic process, like precisely the analytic process. In the analytic process, in the process of analysis, where uh, the subject is precisely through the bond, through the analytic bond, through the collaboration 
uh, so shared labor with uh, the, the, the figure of the analyst uh, uh, confronting and uh, working through uh, the, um, yeah, imp- mm, the consuming social uh, and libidinal imperatives that uh, uh, consume their existence. Uh, so in this, in this setting, the subject is in the, in the impossible position. And it's again also kind of evoking, you know, Freud's thesis that uh, uh, analysis is one of the impossible uh, positions uh, next to governing and educating, you know, or politics and and uh, and uh, uh, pedagogics um, and therapy, then or analysis as, as the third uh, impossible profession. And then he basically says. Um, they are never practiced in a satisfactory manner. I mean, it's not an exact quote, but that's the point, you know. They are, uh, they are professions which are always inherently antagonized, constantly encounter, uh, you know, systemic resistance, resistance of uh, 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 particular individuals, uh, and so on and so forth. And this work with resistance... Uh, is you know the the impossible the impossible position and an impossible task because it 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 doesn't it doesn't come to a conclusion i mean it's it's at the present moment it's virtually endless one cannot say that one will uh find uh, that one will reach the um the stage in which one will uh, you know, be uh, freed of this uh, uh, ongoing uh, confrontation with, uh, you know, this problematic socio-economic framework that uh, that we are living in. Um, but on the level of impotence or impotency, we do not have the 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 bond, uh, the social bond that allows us to. Uh, to work through the uh, causes of our misery, to put it uh, uh, to put it <laughs> uh, bluntly, um, whereas on the level of the impossibility, we do, but we uh, let our lives be determined by a new antagonism, like class struggle in Marx. You know, it's it's the proletarian or the proletariat in the impossible position, not on not in the position of impotency, like in the factory. Mm. Well, you already mentioned this briefly, um, but resistance, that's another key concept discussed in this book. Could you talk about what is resistance? How does it relate to repression? And where does analytic labor, specifically working through, fit into this? It's again one of these one of these immense uh, immense questions, <laughs> but uh, uh, I think uh, I think one can say that repression is resistance in uh, in Freud. You know, I, I mean, of course, there are different uh, there are different uh, uh, um, types of resistance that he's uh, uh, that he's uh, um, you know analyzing or confronting. One very dramatic being precisely, you know, uh, what he uh, calls Flucht in the Frank- uh, uh, Flucht in the Krankheit uh, or 
uh, escape or flight into into illness, uh, like negative therapeutic reaction, you know, where where uh, analysants simply, you know, try to evade analysis or escape, interrupt analysis and uh, retreat to back into their uh, psychosomatic suffering. Um, but uh, yeah, the most the most fundamental uh, uh, mechanism of uh, resistance is is precisely repression because it is ongoing, uh, because it is basically basically the mechanism which establishes the the difference between consciousness and the unconscious, as Freud writes in in his writing on 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 repression. So. Uh, and falling on the side of the unconscious, not of uh, on the side of consciousness. Uh, consciousness is just some sort of yeah superficiality, a surface effect uh, of uh, uh, underlying uh, psychic conflicts and uh, uh, or conflicted psychic mechanisms uh, uh, for Freud. So that's that's kind of a. Um, moment uh, that let me think uh, that Freud basically postulates something as a constitutive resistance, a resistance which not simply, you know, resists to something external, but posits, determines the, the, uh, what, what it resists. It's, it produces, it produces its own damage again. You know, as a surplus, as a surplus uh, product that is then being, you know, continuously uh, appropriated and uh, translated into in, into value or into value of enjoyment and so on and so forth. Yeah, and that's where um, it's it's necessary for the working through. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, working through would be something like uh, like uh, an attempt to, well, of course, to transform the vicissitude of the drive, as as Freud calls it, or basically, yeah, the drive's fixation onto a most most problematic surplus uh, surplus object, which uh, yeah demands. Uh, uh, demands in the present the consumption of my 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 entire uh, my entire existence or the entire existence of society that's why you know new liberalism with its uh uh society does not exist <laughs> is actually is actually uh, in a cryptic way framing precisely the ultimate the ultimate goal of uh uh, this drive-like economy of uh, of uh, capital uh, and uh, continuous growth. Uh, uh, it's not that it's not this kind of uh, you know uh, superficial claim. Oh, there is no such thing as society, as Thatcher said. You know, uh, uh, behind this uh, statement, there is an imperative or a prohibition. Society. Uh, is not allowed to exist. It has to be made inexistent. It, it has to be pushed into inexistence. Uh, in other words, it, it has to be destroyed. Um, hmm. Yeah. 
Well, you, no, 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 that's, that's great. Um, you end your book with a brief, a very brief look towards communism. You write, quote, if capitalism is today the privileged name of a cultural disease, then communism remains the only signifier of a potential cure. The name of an emancipatory process and an impossible, because open-ended, political task, end quote. Do you see any contemporary examples that demonstrate or seem promising for this type of communist societal level process of working through? Well, you know, I mean, I would uh, I would turn the question around uh, around and uh, um, and yeah, turn towards the question: what what is communism in the first place? I think uh, communism is uh, is. Uh, um, is a, let's say a mode of organizing uh, a mode of organizing the multiplicity of already existing emancipatory struggles in the present. So a sort of surplus uh, 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 in its own, a surplus of sociality rather than and you know like indifference to capitalism, which produces an anti-social surplus uh, through dismantling of, of social bo- uh, uh, and environmental bonds and so on and so forth. So uh, um, I would say, uh, yeah, um, communism uh, defines uh, uh, or, or, or means to me above all, um, um, yeah, uh, an effect uh, resulting from uh, the pursuit of strong solidarity between uh, diverse uh, 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 social movements, and you know we we have all the examples of social mo- movements uh, that pursue uh, 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 emancipation in in the present. Black Lives Matter. Uh, um, um, well. You know, then also uh, uh, environmental struggles, uh, uh, mm, mm, queer struggles. Uh, uh, um, you know, I mean, we 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 could we couldn't stop uh, uh, lining them up. But uh, 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 of course, these struggles are also inherently uh, inherently uh, antagonized and. Uh, of course, additionally antagonized uh, 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 through the fact that they are embedded in a hostile uh, um, socioeconomic environment which imposes uh, relations of competition as uh, the sole social bond in quotation mark uh, uh, allowed uh, that is allowed in in capitalism uh, so because uh, it's it's uh, the only one that uh, uh, yeah uh, that sustains this continuous pursuit of uh, 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 of profit or of, uh, of surplus value, but at the same time it is uh, mm, it is inherently destructive for sociality. Um, so yeah, that's uh, 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 that that that's what uh, I would say. Um, in the end, communism signifies a surplus of sociality emerging uh, 
in and through the work of sol uh, the, the, the shared work uh, of solidarity. Um, yeah. Um, and it's really, you know, this, this kind of uh, uh, idea that the common in communism is, uh, is shared labor, shared social labor uh, in contrast to uh, this uh, um, shared uh, exploitation uh, and antisocial labor that we are demanded to exercise in, uh, in the current socioeconomic regime. Great. Well, a final question we like to ask is, do you have any new books that will come out soon or any other projects you're working on? Um, books not soon, but uh, I mean, uh, yeah, I've been working more on on articles in the in the recent years uh, than than on a book. Although I, I mean, these articles are all addressing this issue of an, uh, capitalist antisociality and uh, uh, mm, yeah, this uh, um, also key issue of uh, as uh, of, of solidarity as a sort of uh, uh, affective. Uh, uh, condition of uh, emancipatory politics. So hopefully, even, uh, I, I will be able to eventually uh, um, extract a book out of uh, uh, out of it. But um, yeah, perhaps uh, perhaps in in the coming year I'll get to uh, to this uh, writing effort. Yeah. Well, we've talked a lot. It was very enjoyable. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you again for having me here.